Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 214th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is Christina Hendricks, the stunningly beautiful and talented actress who is best known for playing one of the most memorable characters of the platinum TV era in which we now live. Joan Holloway, later Joan Harris, a Madison Avenue advertising agency's office manager who claws her way up the corporate food chain on AMC's landmark drama series Mad Men for which she received six Emmy nominations for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Series and was nominated for and won two Critics' Choice Awards in that same category. Now, nearly three years after Mad Men's series finale, Hendricks is back and winning great notices again, this time for her work on a network dramedy, NBC's Good Girls, as one of three suburban Detroit housewives who try to extricate themselves from desperate financial straits by teaming together to rob a grocery store, only to find themselves in hotter water than ever. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 42-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How an unexpected modeling career led to appearances in commercials and then to her first outright acting jobs. How a holding deal with John Wells led to some important early opportunities, like a four-episode guest arc on NBC's ER, but did not spare her from subsequent frustrations when she was told by some that her physical type precluded her from playing parts that she otherwise believed she was right for. Why she was at a low point just before Mad Men first crossed her desk, with interest in her for the parts of Peggy and Midge, and why her agents fired her after she decided to accept the role of Joan. Why she decided to follow her eight years on Mad Men, which totally changed her life, with something completely different, Good Girls, a show that is as much a comedy as a drama that airs on a broadcast network rather than a premium cable service, and that is set in and very much addresses the issues of the present rather than the past, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. We always just begin with some of these basic important facts. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. I was raised, I would say, primarily in Portland, Oregon, in Twin Falls, Idaho, and Fairfax, Virginia. My mother was a therapist, marriage counseling, and a hypnotherapist. My father worked for the U.S. Forest Service. And the reason that you moved around as much as you did was because of his job, or what was the... Yes, we could have stayed put, but my dad has an adventurous spirit, 
and would sort of every four or five years go, yep, no, we're done here, let's go. And we'd be like, I hate you. <laughs> well, but, I was going to uh, <laughs> ask, like, how does that shape a kid? Do you think it had an impact on you socially or in terms of your interests or anything like that? I have to say, over the years, many other actors that I've met have moved around a lot as well. And I think there is something about having to be the new kid, fit in quickly. You become an observer of other people. You watch other people's behaviors and you have to sort of dive in. So I think it does lend itself to sort of being an actor and and studying humans. Yeah. Well, something I saw was that I guess it was at a pretty young age that you started with both ballet and children's theater. What made you, do you think, gravitate towards these are both forms of performance, you know, at a, and seems like very young age. How did that start and how serious was that? I started dance very young. The very first thing I ever took was tap dance. You know, I think all little girls at some point want to take a dance class, but I just really, really loved it. So I studied tap and then I went into ballet and that's when I really, really fell in love with the sort of romanticism of ballet and being an artist and even though I was really really young but I started studying every single day and studied for years and years up until I was about 19 and the community theater and getting into theater and musicals and things like that um, we moved around a lot so my mom wanted my brother and I to be able to make friends in a way that wasn't just at school because she knew how clicky schools can be (laughs) so a way that involved us in the community and kids of all different ages not just your one sort of specific class and this was an older brother My brother's four years older, so the very first play, we went and auditioned for the best Christmas pageant ever, (laughs) and I caught the bug, and then then started doing musicals, and I just knew I wanted to do it my whole life. Sometimes things are exaggerated in articles, as as maybe maybe you're aware. (laughs) Um, One of the things, though, that it seems to be consistent through a few different things is that you hated high school, (laughs) and that the saving grace was the drama program there. So why was it so awful? And is that where drama, I guess, really became a more serious pursuit? It is not an exaggeration that I hated (laughs) high school. Much to the chagrin, I think, of old classmates or something. We're like, oh, she was just complaining. (laughs) You know, it's just classic high school. But I I had moved from Idaho to Virginia, which was a very big city for me. And I got teased a lot and I looked different and I was trying to fit in and it wasn't quite working. And I went straight into the drama department because it was cool to be in drama when you were in Idaho. It was not cool (laughs) at all in Virginia. I went to a very sort of Heather's kind of jocks and cheerleaders rule high school. And if you were an artist, it was just confusing and, and, and not celebrated. And I did dive right into the drama department but that's not really why acting it didn't actually sort of get more intense than mm-hmm. I I started doing community theater outside of high school while I was in high school and it was the first time I was in a community theater that wasn't based for children yeah. so it was it was people 18 and above or in my case 15 and above and I was hanging out with real adults who were really talented and doing theater and it was part of their life And it was really exciting to me. And it took me out of high school where I wasn't feeling appreciated or understood and put me in a group of people who really weren't judging me at all and and appreciated me and never blinked an eye at how I looked or dressed or anything. Well, when you refer to appearance, I had seen that were you kind of goth at that point in your life? Is that what this was? Were people giving you a hard time about that or what, what are you referring to? 
When I first moved to Virginia, I had this weird combo platter of looks because I was from Idaho. I mean, you, you only had limited places to shop. Right. I was definitely influenced by the music I was listening to at the time. I mean, I had just discovered The Cure and Concrete Blonde and Depeche Mode mm-hmm. and all that. So I think, you you know, as a kid, you start to reflect the sort of music you listen right. to and your interests. It, but it was this real hodgepodge look. It was like part hippie, part mod. <laughs> and it was only it was sort of through high school and meeting other kids and sort of being teased more and more and more that I got sort of a little bit more punk and then a little bit more goth and then it it got a little darker and darker and darker but it started out I wouldn't even know what you would call it some neo-hippie mod goth princess well you know (laughs) renaissance fair I'm trying to picture it I I wonder if there are some high school yearbooks let's just say there there was a lot of vintage clothing also mixed with Birkenstocks which I don't know that I would recommend Maybe I, I don't know. Yeah, well, it was an experiment. <laughs> well, um, it seems like a almost a recurring theme on this podcast is that people who were treated like outcasts in high school ended up somehow not long after that becoming models and almost to their own surprise as much as anybody else. We just had, you know, maybe two or three episodes ago, the same trajectory with Kristen Ritter, who was on here, and I, I know there have been many other examples. So, how, in your case, do you go from basically being treated like a freak or an ugly duckling or whatever <laughs> to actually being not that long after? I think starting at eighteen or something, professionally modeling. Yeah, well, I mean, models are a strange breed because they're not necessarily the prettiest people. They're they're dramatic looking mm-hmm. to a certain extent. I always considered models sort of freeze frame acting. You got to become the clothes you were wearing or or the atmosphere that you were in or how they made you up. So it's not just about being a pretty girl, it's about being sort of dramatic and and unusual and a little too tall and a little too thin and your lips are a little bit too big and your eyes are a little bit too big. You kind of like a lot of models look a little bit like aliens. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful right, aliens. Right. So it would stand to reason that you might feel a bit awkward with those attributes in high school and and it takes a different eye or a broader mind to maybe see the the inner beauty there and in your case it was people that were customers at a place you were working who were saying like wait a minute there's something here (laughs) i don't even know how you found that i was working at a hair salon i was a receptionist and a shampoo girl yeah customers would come in and say have you ever considered modeling which i thought was bizarre because i had this like short kind of purplish red pixie cut. I looked a little bit like a weird rooster. (laughs) But they were very sweet. And my mom caught wind of it, and she found a contest to be on Seventeen magazine. And anyone in the country could send photos in. And so that's how I got started. So basically, even though you did not win, you did very well in that contest. So what happens as a result of that? You're now recruited or something or signed recruited. You know? uh, I was shipped yeah. off to model right, camp right. yes I didn't I didn't win the contest but through that I was able to meet photographers who took really great photos of me which then allowed me to go up to New York and go into agencies with a handful of pictures in my hand and say hey do you think I could stay here and yeah. you would take care of me yeah. and help me get jobs instead of going to New York to do this, you'd come pretty close to going to college, right? Yes, I had been accepted to Virginia Commonwealth University that has a very good drama department. Mm-hmm. And I had auditioned early, I think as a freshman or a sophomore in high school, and I'd been accepted to the program. So I knew I had a spot waiting for me. 
And my brother had gone there and gone in the theater department, and I had a lot of friends down there. But I was really sort of sore from high school, and, and the experience of being in that environment and around other kids. And I, I got this opportunity to go to New York, and I just felt I didn't have a plan. I didn't know. I, it, I wasn't, I'm going to go be an actress in New York City and do broad. I, I really had no plan. I just thought, I have this inkling that being in New York City and getting out of here is going to get me closer to who or where I want to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to take that risk and that adventure. And so how far into that did the idea that acting might also be something to include in the repertoire, you know, professionally, how did that enter the picture? How And how far into that? I assumed I would always do theater because I'd been doing community theater and I saw adults doing community theater and I thought, well, you go get a, a job during the day and then at night you do community theater and I'd be happy as a clam. And I never sat down to really analyze that, yes, people do make a living at that. It was sort of, there were movie stars and then there were people who act right. after right. work. Yeah. And it just didn't occur to me that I was, I could pursue that as a, as a career. And so when I moved to New York, I thought, well, modeling is going to let me travel the world and we'll just see what happens. Mm -hmm. It eventually brought me to Los Angeles because my mother had wanted to move out here. My brother had moved out here two months before and I was very interested in the music industry and I had some friends in the music industry and I thought, well, maybe I could get an internship and like, I'd love to scout bands and work on albums and, you know. Around uh, what year would this have been? This was around 97. Okay. I was modeling up in, until after that, but that's, I moved to Los Angeles in 97. Yeah. And um, my friends in the music industry were like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. It is the most unappreciated job. It's competitive. It's hard to move up and, and around within it. So I got a modeling agent out here. Mm -hmm. And I decided to ask them if they would let me intern as an agent there. At I, the modeling agency. At the modeling agency while they still represented me as a model. Mm -hmm. So that I was getting some career yeah. business experience. And they were like, well, that's not the normal way, <laughs> but okay. Right. And then oddly, because Los Angeles isn't normally considered a sort of fashion city, so I wasn't expecting to work that much, but, but my career as a model really took off here. And I think the reason being is because Los Angeles is more of a commercial-oriented mm -hmm. town. So all of a sudden, I was going in to audition for commercials where I spoke and moved around like an actor, <laughs> not realizing that I was sort of starting to make a crossover into what I really wanted to do. Was one of the early ones, because I know this was one of them I actually watched, I found a hey. clip today, you, Pierce Brosnan, doing a James Bond, I guess it was tied to Tomorrow Never Dies, sort of a visa tie-in. That was early on? Visa check card. I had lived in Los Angeles for two weeks. Oh and I got, God. it was my first national commercial. It's what got me my SAG card. Pierce Brosnan was so cool and so nice. And I was so nervous. And I had just been living in London for a year. And I had to do a British accent. So I had to do, you know, just sort of like, just, just going to need your ID, James. You know, and, and yeah. So, so I started getting all these commercials. Mm -hmm. And... I realized it was I was getting them more because because I could I could express myself in that way rather it just being high fashion and, and showing off clothes I was you know I was getting to sort of begin to act on camera and then was there something about like you you felt just maybe for your own confidence or whatever that you wanted to also 
take classes at that point as well for, for acting to so that it could go beyond commercials if you wanted at some point? Well, because acting was always the passion of mine, and, and I took it very seriously. And at that point, I heard about so many models that just would all of a sudden be actresses because they were beautiful and they would get that opportunity. And I wanted to really prove that I was getting it for my work. Yeah. And so I started auditing some classes here, and I couldn't really find something that I was responding to. Mm-hmm. They didn't quite seem right. And my brother worked next door to a talent manager. And he was like, would you ever meet my sister? She's a great actress. She did Agnes of Agnes <laughs> of God in high school. He was like, everyone did right. that. And he was like, no, she's really good. So he said, well, let me look at some of her commercials. And he said, well, I'd like to represent you as an actress. And I said, okay, well, I have no idea what that means. I have right. no idea what a manager is. Right. And he said, well, I'll help plan your career and I'll get you auditions and and you need an agent. I said, well, you know what? I'd like to take some classes and I haven't found one. He helped me find someone and I studied with two or three people, very small classes where it was was more just doing scenes. It wasn't a specific technique or whatever. No, it wasn't a specific technique. It was really just one-on-one working with someone else, doing scenes and having someone break them down. And being able to talk about it. And I'd never had an experience like that, just talking about characters and mm-hmm. intentions. And I did that for almost a year and a half. And he was very patient with me. And I really cannot remember what I was watching or who I was watching. But at some point, I was at home watching a movie. And I saw the actress. And I went, I can do what she's doing. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. And I called him up. And I said, OK, let's go audition for an agent. And I went around town, and one of his other clients, a wonderful actor, went around and auditioned, you know, and I did, like, Meg Ryan scenes and stuff, you know. And I was, he was like, well, who, what kind of type do you think you are? I'm like, I'm like a Meg Ryan type, right. you know. <laughs> so I went around, and I got an agent. I know that when, you know, somebody's starting out in, in the career, there can be, you know, things that at the moment might have been really crushing, and then now you can maybe look back and laugh because it's worked out. But it seems like the first thing that you got was a MTV pilot, which you, or I guess it was a pilot, which you shot. In fact, I saw that January Jones was also in it. And yet you guys do it. And then it, for whatever reason, didn't didn't go. But then you do wind up doing your first thing still at MTV with something else, right? There were three things that happened right away. There was this thing that you're talking about called sorority. Mm -hmm. And I remember meeting January in the hallway, sitting on the ground auditioning. (laughs) And then there was MTV Undressed, Mm -hmm. which I actually did. Just to clarify, what kind of a show would we say MTV Undressed? How do we describe just a little context? It was a great idea. It was essentially once you would start with one cast and one storyline. And by the end of the episode, it would introduce you. They would know some other characters, and then you would follow their story into the next. So it would be a a fluid cast, but somehow they were all tied together. I feel like there was like a Coke commercial back in the day or Levi's commercial that did the same thing. (laughs) And it was a smart idea. And because it was a revolving cast, and basically if you lived in Los Angeles, you were on that show at at a certain point because they needed so many actors. But that being said... Even though I'd done commercials, I didn't really know the terms of filmmaking. I didn't know really about hitting marks. I mean, the most basic things. I didn't know what a banana was. I didn't know, you know, all these 
terms that you just need to know just mm-hmm. it's like driving it's right. red like green light <laughs> right, you know i'm right. just stuff you've got to know right. so that was a great intro and they were so nice to me and it was really fun and then i did an episode of angel so those three things i can never remember which one really came first but that kind of laid the groundwork those were the first yeah and those those were all within the first six months of getting my agent because it, i remember at six months i got my first tv series and was that Beggars and Choosers? That was Beggars and Choosers. So this is yeah. this had a high profile because I guess as I understand it was created by Brandon Tartikoff two years before he died and then it goes or you know, it went on the air two years after he died is a better way of putting it. You did nineteen episodes of that. Do you think people looked at you differently after that? Was that sort of something that at least initially put you on the map? I don't know. Or is that know. overstating it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Every once in a blue moon, I will meet someone who's like, I used to watch Beggars and Choosers. I'm like, no, you didn't. I came in on season two. It only was a two-season show. I came in in season two. I was, oh, I was such a deer in the headlights on that one. That was boot camp. I'll tell you what. Yeah. That taught me what to do and what not to do. It was exhausting and scary. But I, I mean, maybe just the, maybe the confidence of having work and something on my resume helped me go into the next audition. And maybe having something on my resume made me seem like a s- less scary bet. Right. Well, because pretty soon after that, and for basically the years between that and Mad Men, you were pretty prolific if you look at the credits. But it seems like for the most part, it's like four episodes of ER, three episodes of Firefly. Like you would be, you'd come in as almost like a specialist to deal with <laughs> things. I know in ER, I was reminded, I went back to kind of check it out. You're this neighbor of Maura Tierney's character who has had some issues with her boyfriend, right? With Firefly. I was an abused wife. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a, all right. I was, you, or you could say issues you, with my boyfriend. All right. Well, okay. That, I don't, I didn't want to spoil it, but all right. Spoiler I guess from, 15 uh, years, years later, ago. spoilers. Uh, no, but I mean, were you content with how things were going or was it frustrating that you were probably still going out for maybe even more sizable things, but it just, I mean, what was your outlook at that point? The, the thing that you wouldn't know by looking at my resume yeah. is I had this really extraordinary circumstance that that doesn't exist that often anymore. I had a production holding deal with John Wells Productions. Oh, okay. So I was sort of a kept woman. <laughs> I couldn't do other work. Right. But okay. I had like one of those old studio deals. Right. You know, they, were, they didn't happen very often, but John Wells is so amazing about sort of keeping a company of people that he likes to work with. Mm-hmm. And I had done a pilot with him called The Big Time, which I still wish people could see because yeah. I just am so proud of it. Extraordinary cast. Amazing, and it ended up just airing as a TV movie. It didn't get picked up. It took place in the 1940s at a TV station. Jane Lynch, Molly Ringwald, Michael Silver. I mean, just amazing, amazing cast. Christopher Lloyd, mm-hmm. Dylan Baker, mm-hmm. and it didn't get picked up. But they called me and said, we would like to give you a, I think at the, at the beginning it was a year and a half production deal, which means we'll pay you this amount of money to not work with someone else. I was like, what? <laughs> I don't have to go audition and you're just going to put right. me in stuff? So then he put me in ER, mm-hmm. which I thought felt like a little test period because mm-hmm. it was four episodes and I thought they're going to see how I do here. I thought it went very well. Mm-hmm. And then 
I remember being on the set with Maura, and they wrote a role for me in a new series called The Court, and that was Sally Field, Diane Carroll, Pat Hingle, Chris, Craig Bierko, uh, I mean, just a, yeah. Josh Radner, an amazing group. And I was like, I'm on the new West Wing. <laughs> this is it. I was so excited. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they wrote this role for me. And we shot six, and we were canceled in three. And you didn't see that coming. That hurt. Yeah. No, I thought this was like, I mean, John Wells. Right. I mean, this group of people, like, what? how could you go wrong? But it didn't go. So then John put me on an episode of Presidio Med. He kept trying. Mm-hmm. And then they gave me another year deal. So right. I was basically working for John Wells Productions for almost three years. How much so, direct interaction so did you have with him? Quite a bit. I called him my, my fairy godfather for a long time. <laughs> I felt like he gave me my career. I really did. When did that end? The John Wells arrangement. It finally, they were like, "We can't, we can't keep you on hold forever. We're trying <laughs> right, here, you know." Right. But the things just weren't going. So I don't know the exact year, but it was, it was just m- probably a few months before I before I got this project called Kevin Hill, which was on UPN with Tay Diggs, mm-hmm. Michael Michelle, Kate Levering. I had an amazing time on. Mm-hmm. I loved it. We we all went to Toronto. We shot twenty two episodes there when UPN still existed. I remember Veronica Mars came out the same year as us, and we were like the two hit shows on UPN, <laughs> and we were so excited. And they're still all really great friends, and I love them. And we shot one full season, and we shot 22 episodes, and it did not go. Moved back to L.A. Because that was over. That was over. Right. Kate Levering and I joked. We were like, well, if we don't get a season two, we'll be roommates. <laughs> Cut to there you go. us with the movers <laughs> moving our seven. So then we were roommates, right. which was fun. Right. And I remember that being a particularly brutal pilot season. Her and I would run lines on our front porch and there would be so much material to learn every night because you would have maybe five auditions the next day. And sometimes you don't get that material till seven o'clock at night. And it's pages and pages and pages and you're bringing costume changes in your car and trying to do the, the old gym class change where you don't show anything in right. backseat and changing your lipstick so you look like, you know, now I look like a lawyer, now I look like a nurse, now I look, you know. Was it during that period that something happened that I want to quote back to you where the way you said it was, quote, I auditioned for things where I knew I killed the audition, I knew I did. It was like, oh, should I give you my sizes now or what? And they would call up and say, we just don't think that a doctor would look like that. Or things like that. Were you were you running up now for maybe the first time, maybe not, of to just sort of the idea of assumptions on the part of casting directors or things, or just you know everybody looks a certain way, but maybe that's not the way they see themselves. I mean, how did you reconcile all that? Yes, that that was around that time, and it it took me years to see myself in a different way. I thought of myself as a very specific way, and I. I looked around me and I saw the other actresses and I I look like them and I and I'm here to play the lawyer and I'm here to play the cop and I'm here and I would know I did a great job. I'm a really good gauge. I can go in there and be so bad and stink up the room and call back and apologize. <laughs> I know when I'm terrible right. and I know when I've done a good job. I really do. Yeah. Most of the time I've got a pretty good gauge. And I would leave going, "No, I think you're going to get a phone call. I think I think I think I may have booked that job." And I do remember one specifically where they said, well, she's supposed to be this this sort of scientist or something. And I, I just, I don't think a scientist looks like that. And they were sort of insinuating that I was a little too sexy or a little too sexy, yeah. I guess, yeah. really is the yeah. word. And I thought, well, that's shitty. You know, there are all types of people doing all types of careers. And, and I started to realize that I was being seen in a very specific way. And I was I was surprised and I guess a bit naive 
that it took me a while. And I would get auditions. My manager would call and say, oh, they went you know, go in on this. And I would read the sides and I'd go, I would never cast me in this role. <laughs> like this is like this like cheerleader. She was a cheerleader in high school. And she and they're like, yeah, that's what you look like. And I was like, I'm a goth kid. Like I'm the quirky weirdo. I'm like the sidekick, you know. So does yeah. that get demoralizing? Like when or do you just adapt? Well, I think it's important as an actor to know where you fit in. I mean, you are a storyteller. So if people are seeing you a very specific way, I would say embrace that and learn how to finesse that and master it, but also show them that you can do something else. Right. You know, make sure that you don't just let yourself, if, if you really feel differently and you feel passionately about that, I would sometimes get a script and say, I'll audition for that, but will they also let me audition for this other role? Because I, I really think I, I can bring my best self to that other role. Mm-hmm. So I just never gave up on the other. But I think I started to embrace the one that I was confused about. Mm-hmm. So what was going on in your life when you first heard about this thing called Mad Men? And I've read that you were actually first looked at for two other characters before Joan. So how did it all shake out that you ended up as Joan? Well, it was it was pilot season and a lot of the actors listening to this will know that all the drama series will come up first and then you'll go into the comedies. So you kind of know when the dramas are running out. And it was pilot season and and it was brutal. And I had auditioned for a million things. And one of the things I got sent was Mad Men. And I didn't have the full script at first. And it was for the role of Peggy. And I read it. And I was like, "I, I think they want someone much younger for this. And I was also like, what is this show where there's a doctor smoking while she's at a gynecological <laughs> appointment? Because I didn't know it was the 60s. Right. Because right. I didn't have the full they script. And no I was like, concept. this is a messed up <laughs> script. What is going on? I called my manager and I said, hey, listen, I, there are too many auditions and stuff to go on things that I'm just completely not right, right for. So if, if they want someone who's 20 years old, I'm not 20 years old. They called back and said, yeah, you're right. They actually do. And I said, great. Then let's just save me hours of work. And then I think it was several weeks later, I got, I, I believe I then got the full script. So I was trying to understand what this, this thing was about. And it was for the role of Joan. I remember very specifically trying to dress sort of like a 60s secretary. I remember exactly what I wore and drove out and did my audition. Then didn't hear from them. Then I got a call to audition for the midge role, which was Don Draper's artist lover. The Rosemary DeWitt. Yes. Yeah. Who, you know, you can't beat Rosemary Joy. Right. And I was just willing to take either role. I said, whatever one sticks around is the one I want. Because Whatever's now, the series regular. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were both written beautifully. And you had now begun to see that you felt overall the script for this pilot looked impressive. It was one of those scripts that, like I said, I'm changing in my car, doctor, lawyer, blah, and you started to forget which script was which because right. they were all the same. And this was one that everyone was talking about because it was entirely different there was nothing else out there like and the writing was beautiful and strange and confusing and complicated and did you know who Matthew Weiner was at that point no (laughs) no idea right because basically he'd done he'd been a part of the team of Sopranos but he himself was not that widely no no yeah. yeah And then some more time went by, and then they brought me back for Joan again. And I remember going over the lines with my best friend, and I had tears in my eyes. I was exhausted from pilot season, and I had been beaten down. And I was like, I'm just saying words. I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. And she said, nope, this is your part. 
And I said, I'm not doing anything. She goes, this is your part. And it was a three-page monologue, you know, that Joan does. And it was so wordy. And I was just, like, lightheaded from fear. And then it still took another couple weeks before I ever heard back from him. And who had you auditioned for? Was it Matt or was it other people? Or It was Matt. It was Alan, our director. Casting, I'm sure, was in there. I don't know if I breathed in oxygen while I was in there. <laughs> I meet people on auditions, casting directors, producers, and things later. They're like, remember I was on that? And I said, I don't remember because <laughs> when I'm in that room, I'm so scared. Yeah. I'm really, truly not breathing. Wow. So I usually black out. <laughs> <laughs> and when you found out you got it, you remember that call or how, how big a deal that was? Well, it was. I had to decide between that or another project. And Mad Men was the one I wanted to do. And my agents wanted me to do the other. And my manager really wanted me to do Mad Men. AMC wasn't really a network. Right. Old it movies. was a period piece. Yeah. I wasn't told if I was going to be a series regular or not. Like everything was a strike against it. But the pilot was so good. And I said, I've been on the things that seemed like they were sure bets. And they weren't. I always went for like, you know, the fastest line at the grocery store. And it wasn't <laughs> working. So let's do the thing that we really, really love and want. And there was some fallout from that, right? Yeah, I lost my agents. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's almost worth just pointing out how insane that is because of everything. Obviously, you know, maybe at the time it wasn't as obvious, but, like, imagine what they were thinking in season, you know, seven or eight. What's even more insane to me is that there are so many actors in this town, and it is so hard, and I always worked. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. I was always working. So what made me so undesirable as a client? You know, I was always on a show. I was always bringing in income and it still wasn't enough for them. You wouldn't, so, want, to, who, you wouldn't want to share who suck this was. Suck it, William Morris. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm sure they, uh, they, they're going to regret that one forever. That's, that's an epic mistake. Okay. So <laughs> talk about that first, well, I guess there wasn't really a lot of question about this pilot going, right? I mean, it was, the show was clearly going to be picked up, right? Oh, no. We we had no idea. I, I think I it took almost a year to find out. Really? Matt was finishing The Sopranos. We were on hold, so we couldn't really do anything else. I went and got a job at Rita Flora as a florist because I always wanted to be a florist, <laughs> and I couldn't work on anything else. Amazing. So I thought, well, what a great opportunity to go learn some flower arranging right. skills. And <laughs> so I went and worked over there. For a That's while. Unbelievable. I didn't and people know. were like, oh, are things going okay? I said, I, I think I'm on this show called Mad Men, but I don't know. They were like, Mad Money? I said, no, it's called Mad Men. I don't know. Well, I'm waiting to find out. That's you know? unbelievable. And so gets picked up. You guys do your full first season. Before the rest of the world knew what you had done, were you confident that this was really clicking and working and was special? Or did you have to see the response from others to know that? I knew it was clicking and working and magical and so exciting. And to me, honestly, season one is the most magical time, not knowing how people are responding. You're just being artists. You're just going to work. You're trying to do the absolute best job. You don't know how people are responding to characters, if they care, if, they're, if the ratings are good. It doesn't matter. You're just going and putting on the best show you can. So I knew it was. That didn't mean anyone was going to watch it. It didn't mean that they were going to advertise it well or that anyone would ever hear about it 
or that they would come out with this killer first campaign yeah. with like Amy Winehouse song and you know John Hamm walking down a hallway. It was like, who doesn't want to see that show? You know, it was just magical. So right. you, we couldn't have anticipated any of that. And when it did come out, I think from what I can remember and what I was able to find it, reviews were great off the bat, but I don't know that the audience was fully there right away, right? And then also, I think the first major awards recognition of the ton that you guys ended up getting, you couldn't even really enjoy, right? What happened? We were on strike. It was the writer's strike. Yeah, no one, we were getting critical acclaim. I mean, the articles that were coming out were like love letters. Mm -hmm. It gives me goosebumps, honestly, thinking about how beautiful it was. And it was the Golden Globes and... There was a writer's strike, so they couldn't actually have a televised ceremony. And so our whole cast and crew went to a hotel, and there was a viewing party, and they had some actors reading off a list. At a press conference, At basically. a press conference. Yeah. And the best actor is John Hamm. And we all just looked at each <laughs> other, and we were like, what the? Like, no one knows who we are. What are they even talking about? And we just thought we were just going to go and hear our names called out. And then we won Best Show. And we were just up there in jeans and T-shirts on, you know, <laughs> on a balcony having drinks. Which in some ways probably is nicer than when you have to, you know, go probably. be in front of her. But that's, that's crazy. Popping champagne and right. hugging each other out of disbelief. And right. it was really exciting. Amazing. So what was it about Joan that people responded to? And and how also, as things started to go along in the show, did find its audience, how did your own personal life begin to change as you, you know, you weren't like totally anonymous before, but whatever anonymity was there, I guess, before probably went out the window pretty quickly. Well, not quickly. To answer the first question, why do I think people responded to Joan? I mean, I think they responded to all the characters because they were so well-written they were never a stereotype of anything. There was constant surprise and twists and turns. And the characters were learning, which you don't always see on TV. They learned from their past mistakes, or sometimes they would get in deeper. But you you started to see the history of these people, and, and every action had a reaction. There wasn't a storyline that then you chucked out the window, and you didn't see the results of it later. So you're very invested. And to watch Joan evolve started out as a strong woman, but in a different kind of place mm -hmm. and watch her grow and become a feminist and be become proud and resilient and a mother and a lover and a wife. People were real cheerleaders for her. And there was something about her that she was a bit of a truth teller, that she said things that other people wanted to say that you would never say, or it was a little scary or it was abrasive or, but there was always sort of a truth to it or she was always trying to sort of help and there was a real warrior part of her that I think made a lot of people feel really empowered watching her. Mm -hmm. And your life changing? I mean, that show changed my, turned it upside down on its head. I mean, it changed everything. It, the opportunities it gave us as, as artists completely changed. For the first time when I walked into a room, they were already a fan they weren't flipping through a stack of headshots trying to figure out which one was mine while they're eating like a ham sandwich, you know? And so many more exciting projects coming our ways. But not only that, just sort of the world opened up to us and, and we were excited about stirring up these conversations in the workplace and at home and 
you know, Paris was giving Matt Weiner the key to the city. I mean, it, it really was one of those magical rides that you, it, it was just extraordinary. And be, because of the kind of show it was, it was treated with such respect. Mm-hmm. And the fans were really passionate and respectful and smart. And it just felt like a very exciting thing to be a part of. I guess other byproducts were that during hiatuses, if that's the correct plural, I don't know, I guess, hopefully, hiatai, no. Um, <laughs> I can guarantee that's that not is not it. correct. <laughs> um, Let's just say, on your hiatus. On your hiatus. So you started to, you know, do more film stuff. Drive, of course, mm-hmm. is one of the coolest movies ever. <laughs> also, you were now, I think, looked at not just for fashion and things on screen, but in your own life and all of that. From what I was able to gather, though, one of the things that I think you maybe found grating or annoying was that a lot of people, and particularly in the media, were writing things about physical appearance as much as performance or whatever, maybe because they were still catching up on the show or whatever their (laughs) excuse was. But And I guess at times I imagine that would be nice, and we can note here in case anyone has not kept track of their paperwork, May 2010. Esquire's Sexiest Woman Alive. That was a, <laughs> But on the other hand, I can see how that would not always be welcome and just that whole aspect of things. So how did you figure out how to navigate that to a point where you're comfortable with it and, you know, you can embrace the good parts, but it doesn't distract from what you're actually trying to do? I'm still learning how to do I think everyone in this in this business has to do that. I mean, as soon as you become someone public, people want to scrutinize you down to you know what mascara you wear down to your self-tanner so all of a sudden this focus on your physicality becomes very very great which is hard especially on a show like Mad Men where we were getting nominated for Emmys every year and and all these amazing reviews and we were working our asses off and and I was working so hard to bring this character and I just kept wanting to talk about my 1960s bra and it was like, I, I listen, guys, it's pointy. I get it. It's super exciting. Right. But there's really only one conversation we had about it, and that's it. And so there was just tons and tons of focus on it. And it was like, I think the thing that really helped me sort of let it settle in is the feedback from audiences and, and women watching the show and men watching the show saying that it was inspirational and helped them feel good and you know it was a very stylish show so there was a lot of focus on the fashion and the different silhouettes of the undergarments and the in the clothing and stuff and I realized how good it made me feel that that I was sort of giving a positive image to people so that's helped but I you know I don't need to talk about my bra anymore it's like it's been done (laughs) it's been done guys right just uh put a bow on the Mad Men chapter as you look back were there any particularly exciting or challenging episodes? I know we've said your character goes through the gamut of raped and impregnated and, you know, divorced and everything. But the one that I kept coming back to when I was just trying to think about this was the other woman, the 11th episode of the fifth season where Joan's raising her kid alone and has to decide whether or not to to sleep with the Jaguar dealer to secure that account in return for a partnership at Sterling Cooper Draper Price. The scene where, at the end, where you return to the boardroom and no one really directly addresses what's happened, but everyone knows that something significant has changed. That, 
I think has got to be one of the great moments of acting for you on that show. And I believe it was the episode that you submitted when you were nominated for that season. So I think you liked it too. But maybe something about that or just overall, if there was another one that even surpassed that as, all right, if there's a college class, which I think there may already be, where they study <laughs> Mad Men, maybe. it's like if they can only watch one episode to understand Ooh. what you did at your best, Ooh. what would that be? I mean, that was an important episode to me because it was one of our more controversial episodes, which I always enjoy mm-hmm. stirring the pot. And it was complicated. I mean, it was complicated to play a woman going through those emotions. And one thing I think we were sort of known for in Mad Men was doing everything quite subtly. Maybe it's one of the reasons none of us ever wanted Emmy, but oh, John did. John, finally, yeah. Because <laughs> we weren't screaming and crying right. and stuff. But there were a lot of very nuanced things in the writing that we got to explore and play with. And, and so I'm very proud of that because it was very complicated. Uh, gosh, there's there's so many episodes. That, I mean, I remember Babylon. It was It was episode five or six in season one. And I think it was just because it was the first time I got to really see who Joan was. This was an episode where we had men on one side of the glass and women trying on lipstick on the other. And you saw that I was sort of this queen bee and I was flirting with these people and and schooling these people. And we also revealed this, this affair with Roger and this hotel, which I thought was so beautifully written. So I have a fondness Mm -hmm. for that. But there's also, you know, the, the scenes where she went through the rape, I thought were incredibly important. And I thought it was very, very important and very cathartic when she left her husband mm-hmm. as well. And that was one of those those moments where actually there was some shouting and screaming and like it felt good yeah. to be Joan in that moment and like right. just finally let it, you know, get it off your chest. Yeah. But there's so many so special many. Mo- there's so many yeah. I mean, you know, 8 years, 9 years, so many special moments. So So when the 8 or 9 years comes to an end or is nearing an end, how were you feeling? Were you not only about where they're leaving your character, who I'm sure you feel possessive of, but also your own future at that point? Was there any, was it a good feeling or was it a feeling of trepidation about what's to come because the bar has been set so high for a show and a part? Or just what was your state of mind? All of it. Like just having to break up with someone, but not because you fell out of love, because one was moving away. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of, deep, heart-wrenching love, but understanding. Wanting to finish when we were still at the top of our game. Terrified of the future, but also knowing that so many opportunities were going to be presented because of this. So grateful. Knowing I may never find something ever as special, but excited about the idea of exploring all sorts of new characters. So really like this roller coaster. I, I mean, I definitely shuffled around the house a little bit, but I also threw myself straight into work because I distraction is the best way for me to deal with, you know, if I just shuffled around the house right. and watched Bravo right, for a right. month, I'd be in big trouble. Right, right. So I threw myself straight into work and, and just really dove into to acting, you know, and, and choosing other characters. So how long was it between you doing your you know, wrapping up your scenes on Mad Men and finding out about Good Girls for the first time. Oh, gosh. So we wrapped in 2016. And I started Good Girls seven months ago, yeah. eight months ago. Yeah. So in 2017, but... How did you feel about the idea that, all right, I'm now potentially... Do I want to get involved with another open-ended television series having just done 
eight, nine years of that. Yeah. I mean, I love television. Yeah. So I was never against going on to another series. I just wanted it to be the right one. And in that interim, in that year and a half, I did a, a bunch of films mm-hmm. and some other TV and did some workshops of theater and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it had to be the right one. And when this opportunity came up, I was like, do I want to do this every day for potentially seven years? And I looked at these two other women and this writing and this tone, and it was so different. And I thought, I loved the balance of of the drama and the comedy and being able to stretch my muscles or whatever and and play in comedy alongside the drama, which I I would say most people know me for the drama, Mm -hmm. was really exciting. And I thought, that would be fun to do every day. Because there's a lot of laughing involved in this and surreal wackiness that I think would break up some of this intensity that I've been dealing with over, you know, for years and years yeah, and years yeah. doing these really sort of heavy dramas. And, so it just seemed exciting. And in terms of the time of where the show is set and the tone and just everything, it's like couldn't really be any further from Mad Men, right? No. So was that a concerted thing that when you're thinking about what you were going to do after Mad Men, I want to remind people that I don't I'm need I'm a to, modern lady. I'm a modern lady, <laughs> believe it or not. And Look I can do comedy. Jeans, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, to be honest, and it this is one thing that's so special about, there is nothing like Mad Men. No. I mean, yes, there's all sorts of period things out there, but there's nothing like Mad Men. And people are like, are you worried you're going to be typecast as Joan? I said, there's no other no. Joan. There is no other Joan. <laughs> right, right. So in a way, it just opened doors to other kinds of characters. But no, I, I wouldn't be able to say I'm going to navigate my career in such a way that it needs to be just the opposite of this or it needs to highlight this because we w- it wasn't seen in this. That would be such a tricky, yeah, tricky yeah. thing to do. And it really just is about, can I bring something to this character that is exciting and different? Can I help tell this story? Would this be fun to do every day? Do I feel like this material is real and honest and that these relationships are real and honest? And I, it checked all those boxes. There is an, another, though, big market difference between the two shows, which is that you're coming off of, I guess, what would be classified as premium cable, right, where you can pretty much do what you want to do. It's not fully HBO or something where you could just run wild, but you had pretty loose reins there. And now you have to go to broadcast a broadcast network, NBC, which comes, the upside is much bigger built-in audience, I think, potential audience, but you got to behave yourselves a little bit with standards and practices and whatever. How did you think about that in terms of, all right, you know, this is going to be a show that deals with some heavy stuff. How do we do that within these confines? Well, it's interesting because even though I was on premium cable, we never cursed. (laughs) We were never naked. And we were dealing with really intense adult subject matter. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it's the same. I don't miss like language or seeing more ass (laughs) from from our show. I think John Slattery is the only one who really had to do that as I think about it. Had Um, to. (laughs) I know. It was was a request from him. So in that way, but yes, there is, I would say the difference is artistically, do you trust that a network show is going to go there 
and approach the raw, dark material in the way that it should be. And let's not make it glossy. And that being said, because this also has some comedy in it, there's this sort of fine line that we go back and forth with. And I think they're being very respectful to Jenna Bands, who's our creator. Mm-hmm. And there is dark subject matter. And, you know, so much about that stuff can be about just the way you shoot that certain scene or the music you drop in at that point. Like, let's not make it cheesy. Let's do it real. Even the way the font that the titles are, you know, those have all been very, very carefully considered. And trust me, talked about a lot on my part. (laughs) I am like the ambassador from cable coming over (laughs) to make sure that there's some artistic conversations going on all the time. And I know that you even spoke up about the fact, I think it was at TCA's maybe in January, would that have been January, where Mm -hmm. people are, you know, everybody's very hypersensitive about things now. And they say, you're calling a show good girls when these are women and blah, blah, blah. And I think you had a pretty clear explanation for that, right? Yeah. I said, I mean, it's ironic. It's it's basically where it's a big middle finger to the phrase. I mean, no, we're women, we're not girls. And what is a good girl anyway? (laughs) I mean, honestly, it's basically taking back that phrase and and flipping it upside down. And genre labels can be very reductive. Like Mad Men was hilarious at times, even though it was in the drama series category at the Emmys or whatever. But I mean, do you feel that Good Girls, which does waver so much between these things do you feel at least in its first season that it is more a drama or a comedy if you have to make that call i mean i i didn't know what sort of category we would be considered in and and we're being considered in drama but i would have believed if we fell into either i mean nurse jackie was a comedy yeah and actually i think they maybe even mid-run changed Switched. yeah I love, I love when shows do yeah, that. Orange yeah. is the New Black. What are you doing? Exactly. Come on, make it work for you. Um, <laughs> it's true. That's the best example. Yeah. But I, I do understand how it can be confusing. And, and that's one thing that I love about our show. And I don't really want to be... I mean, listen, if, if we're talking about awards and things and people, you've got you've to pick a category right. and you've got to do it. But I like that people don't really know. And I think that's cool. And I like that... You can sit down and watch something intense happening and then have a relief of a huge laugh right right in the middle of it and then be thrust back into it again. I think that's a fun ride to be on. And for your first season of doing this, I mean, to come back to the idea of like where you felt most challenged or stretched or whatever, there are a whole range of things we could bring up as potential examples. But I mean, there's even a thing which is kind of amazing when you think that how you know, there's a scene where one of your friends is being basically sexually assaulted by her boss. I think you shot this before Harvey yeah. Gate and everything. Yeah. But I mean, is it something like that? Or do you find the comedy where, you know, you're robbing a store and I think inquiring about the dollar, I forget what it was, of the little girl who's Doc like Mc, coward. Nick Steffens, yes. the TV show? Yes. So, Are I you mean, saying which one do I respond yeah, to more? Well, not even about which you necessarily respond to more, but like, what do you enjoy more and what do you find maybe more challenging at this point? I am probably more intimidated by the comedy. My go-to is to always find the most honest truth in every moment. So when I turn that corner and I see my sister being raped that is such a strong, emotional, immediate response. And I have such a tight working and 
and personal relationship with Mae Whitman mm-hmm. that to just that visual sent me into just going into that honest place of what I would do and the protection and the anger and all of those feelings that it stirred up. So so that happens very naturally to me holding up a grocery store with dishwashing gloves <laughs> and a God. ski mask of my son's right. <laughs> and kicking over cans and asking a little girl about Doc McStuffins <laughs> is a bigger stretch for me, yeah. honestly. <laughs> and it's a matter of keeping that honest and true and believable and giving yourself up to the absurdity. And, and knowing that these three women are quirky, odd people. Mm-hmm. So the way they handle these things is weird. Like, Sometimes they deal with heavy emotion with humor. Mm-hmm. They they have to make a joke in the middle of this insane thing because it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. So it's giving into that. So I guess the last question is just at this point in time, looking back over the big picture like we've been doing, what are you proudest of and what's your greatest unfulfilled ambition at this point as far mm-hmm. as – so just little questions, you know. Just to sum up your whole career. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously I'm – I'm just extraordinarily proud of Mad Men and Joan. It was life-changing. I like the market left on the map of television and that it inspired, I think, a higher quality of programming that I'll always be proud of because now I get to watch all those great shows. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I would love to do a big musical really? number on Broadway, but I would have to train, well, train, train, train my ass off first. Well, you but did musicals as a kid. You did the Sondheim thing with Colbert and everybody, right? At that Lincoln was Center. At Lincoln Center, which people really like. So are you open to that for hiatus type thing? Yes. I mean, obviously, that theater schedule is daunting yes. and a whole different thing. It's not just a hiatus thing. I mean, if you could manage to do it and do it two months, that's well, the dream, right? Well, engagements. Yeah, they, there are. It's a big, big thing. But I also think... It would be the most exciting thing I've ever done. And I love to dance. And even just doing company at Lincoln Center, just being in there and singing and dancing every day and the energy that that brought me, brought me so much happiness that I would have to say that would be the goal. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.